We now turn to a study of God's Word. As we begin, do you remember those days of school when you were in some class of algebra or geometry and you found your attention slipping? It's not that you didn't want to learn. It was just in that moment you had that nagging thought, will I ever need this in the real world? What practical use does this information have? What theology can sometimes seem to us dry. It can seem dusty, perhaps a good option for enthusiasts, but not so useful for us practical folks. We like our 10-step programs. We like the books or the podcasts that tell us clearly what to do. We're like those kids in school looking up the answers in the back of the book because we think, I'm not really going to need to know this. Give me the cheat sheet. Give me the quick answer. But contrary to popular opinion, theology, the knowledge of God, is practical. And it is not optional. It is essential and intensely useful to us. Listen to this quote from the 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon. The proper study of God's people, God's elect, is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. See the practical use? It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can encompass and grapple with. In them, that is those subjects, we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject, and this is still Spurgeon, humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified. And the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And a third, whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. An old English word for comforting. Oh, there, it, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quiet for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam that is a soothing medicine for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. 
I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you to this morning. These words of Charles Spurgeon are powerful, and they are true. Spurgeon is right, and we too this morning will be considering our God together. And I hope that you will see with me that the knowledge of God is good. And not only that, that it is essential and incredibly practical and useful for us. But when it comes to seeking out this knowledge of God, no shortcuts will do. No cheat sheets are offered. No quick answers in the back of the book. No, we must delve into God's word and dig deep. But if we do, we will find God himself and we will be changed for it. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms will be in Psalm 146 this morning. If you're not used to opening an actual Bible and you have one in front of you, just open it right in the middle and you'll probably be there. Taking a short break from our regular series in the book of Luke to spend two Sundays in the book of Psalms. And our main point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Knowing God leads us to praise him and trust him alone. Knowing God leads us to praise him and trust him alone. Our ho- my hope this morning for us is that we would respond to the knowledge of God that we receive here in this passage. We would respond to it with praise and with trust. For context, as we begin, the book of Psalms is Israel's prayer book and hymn book. God's people through the centuries have found the Psalms to be a poetic treasure trove. There is gold in the Psalms for Christians. For here we find God-inspired prayers that capture the full range of human emotion, of earthly experience. And yet out of every experience, the psalmists express each emotion in prayers to God. The Psalms teach us that it is okay to hurt, that it is okay to feel, and that it is okay to wrestle with God through prayer in every circumstance we find ourselves in, in this fallen world. And the Psalms remind us that God knows what we are going through, that he cares, and that he answers our honest prayers, that he answers our humble prayers. Psalm 146 is the first of the last five psalms in the book of Psalms. And this last group of psalms are unique as psalms of praise. If you have it there in front of you, Psalm 146, notice that this psalm, as the rest of these five, each one begins and ends with the same refrain. Hallelujah! That's Hebrew for praise the Lord. Look in your Bibles at Psalm 146, verse 1. In verse 10, it begins and ends, praise the Lord, as does Psalm 147 through to 150. And these psalms reach their culmination in Psalm 150 with the declaration, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The psalms as a book, like our lives, is climaxing in a crescendo of praise. While the book of Psalms teaches us to worship, The book itself reminds us that the worship we take part in is not just our earthly joy. It will be our 
heavenly and eternal joy as well. Let's read Psalm 146. Follow along with me as I read aloud. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. As we begin looking at the Psalms in general, it's good to keep a few things in mind. One, Psalms are prayers. They are inspired and recorded prayers to God. Secondly, Psalms are songs. They are part of the liturgy and the worship of Israel. We don't have the actual song chords or notes recorded, but these were originally songs to be sung communally. And thirdly, Psalms are poems. They are poetry. They are pieces of literature. Now, the primary feature of Hebrew poetry is not rhyme, like in English poetry, but parallelism. Parallelism. Phrases in parallel with one another is what we find in Hebrew poetry. You can see this in verse 2. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. These lines are in parallel with each other, and together the two lines capture one thought, but they're laid out poetically next to each other. As we begin, <clears throat> let's look first of all at the God that we praise. The God that we praise. Notice with me at the beginning of Psalm 146 and the end of the psalm, praise the Lord. You can't tell in English, but the phrase is plural. It is a command. It's a call to worship. You in English can either mean you singular, hey, you guy, or it can mean you plural, hey, you all, or y'all, as Southerners put it. I'm not picking on Southerners. They're actually more specific when it comes to plurals in this way. The psalm begins and ends with this call to worship, calling God's people, all of us, to praise the Lord. And while the rest of the psalm is personal in its expression, the intro and the conclusion remind us that we are praying this hymn together as God's people. Now, what is praise? What is praise that we are called to do? It's an expression of delight. Praise is different than thanks. Thanks expresses gladness for something that has been done or a gift that has been given. Praise is delighting in God himself for who he is. Now in this psalm we are also delighting not only in God's character and his attributes but also his works and his deeds. And this is because his wonderful works tell us something about who he is, about the kind of God that he is. By studying his works and his deeds, we are able to see something of his character. 
C.S. Lewis, in Reflections on the Psalms, explains praise this way. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And then he turns to considering the particular praise of God. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all, that is God, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme happiness. Do you see then that the first practical purpose of our knowledge of God is delight? It's joy? The psalmist delights in knowing God because it leads to delight in God. It leads to joy. The knowledge of God is not impersonal, but extremely personal. Do you remember married folks getting to know your future spouse? It was getting to know the person that led to such love and delight in them. That's a glimpse into our relationship with God. God is so much greater than any spouse. And as we learn more about him, there is more and more to delight in. The psalm begins with not only a call to worship, but also a personal resolution. There is resolve here in verse 2. Look there, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. While I have my being, as long as I exist. And then in verse 10, there's a statement about the reign of our king. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. The resolve to praise God coincides with the length of his rule. Our God will reign forever. And so the psalmist says, I will praise him forever too. And this is a pointer to us. That the work of praising God is not only the joy of this life, but it will be our joy for all eternity. In the words of the old American hymn, Hark, I hear the harps eternal, ringing on the farther shore. That is, we can almost faintly hear the saints that have crossed over death and are now in heaven, singing God's praises, Christ's praises forever. And then the hymn writer says, As I near those swollen waters, that is the waters of death, with their deep and solemn roar, I can hear the harps eternal. Souls have crossed before me saint, uh, safely to that land of perfect rest. I can hear them singing faintly in the mansions of the blessed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lamb. Glory to the great I am. God is revealing himself to us in this life. But there is only so much that we will be able to grasp in our short lives. But Christian, that is why we have eternity. In the scriptural glimpses we have of heaven, we see God's people in joyous, rapturous praise to Christ. For the infinite God to reveal himself to finite beings will take an eternity. And the more that we get to know him, the more we delight in him. And this will be our joy in heaven, knowledge and joy growing and growing without end forever. Brothers and sisters, do you make it a part of your daily spiritual disciplines? Your part of your daily routine to praise your God, 
to delight in your, our great God. Let me encourage you to do this. Not only on Sundays, but daily. And not only because God commands it, but also because God's invitation to praise is an invitation to your joy. Jackie Hill Perry asked the question recently on social media, when is the last time your children caught you in active worship? We are caught doing the things that we love. We are found doing the things that we delight in. It's a great question. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to make praise a daily part of your life. It means you will grow in your joy. And not only do we see in this psalm our God whom we praise, but secondly, our God whom we trust. Our God whom we trust. Do you see the second practical result of knowing God? Look at verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. And verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Knowledge of God also leads us to trust in God. As we get to know this great God, our trust in him grows. The psalmist warns that we should not put our trust in princes. That word princes does not necessarily mean royalty, but rather people of greatness. There's always a temptation for us to look to people, to human beings, for safety, for security, and for hope. But there's a danger here. We can quickly look to people to fill the place that only God should hold. The psalmist shows how foolish this is. Look at how he explains this in verses 3 to 6. And, and notice as I read all the references to the creation from Genesis 1 through 3 that are poetically sprinkled in. This creation vocab words have been sprinkled throughout this psalm. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man. Hebrew word for man is Adam. Reminds us of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, reminds us of Genesis 2, as God breathes life into the man that he formed from the ground. He returns to the earth. Reminds us of the earth that God used to form that first man. On that very day, his plans perish. That word day is repeated all throughout Genesis 1 and 2. The seven days of creation. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth. It reminds us of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Why does he do this? To remind us that human beings, however great, however strong, are only created beings. And it is foolish to put our hope in mere flesh and blood when God himself will be our trust and our help. I remember one time hearing a fire alarm in our apartment complex and not knowing whether it was a test or an actual fire. It was a moment of clarity, deciding what was necessary my box of important documents, and my kids. There are moments of decision in our lives like this that reveal what's important, that reveal what we trust. Moments when difficulty comes, when trials meet us, and who or what we turn to first reveals our hearts. God would have us turn to him first, to see him as our ultimate trust and hope. In the movie, The Wizard of Oz, the wizard declares himself to be the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. But in the end, what appeared to be great and powerful is shown to be a 
short, balding man behind a lot of smoke and mirrors. This unmasking is a great illustration of what mere human beings are before God. Dorothy tells the wizard, you're a very bad man. And he replies, oh no, my dear, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. This is how it is for human beings too. Our leaders may be good leaders, but they make very bad gods. Our spouses, our friends may be good spouses and friends, but they make very bad saviors. When God's people would have a king in 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And we can do the same thing when we look to mere humans to give us what only God can give. We reject God. But the reality is God will never fail us. And he is the only one worthy of our ultimate trust. Let me encourage you to make him and him alone your ultimate trust. Look too here in verse 5 at how God describes himself. Verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. When I was a teenager, my older brother Joshua was a volunteer host on the Christian radio station in our town. That meant that my older brother was a minor celebrity in our small Christian community, that kid on the radio. And as his younger brother, I was under his shadow. I remember being at a Christmas party that the station put on and being introduced as Josh's brother, Jason, by someone with a mic. And I responded out of my teenage insecurity. I'm not Josh's brother. I'm Jason. I'm a person. I'm important. I matter. I didn't realize that the mic was a live radio mic. And my little rant went out over the airways for hundreds of people to hear. I'm not Josh's brother. I'm a person. I matter. But you know, God isn't like us. You see here, he's willing to be known as the God of Jacob. Like Josh's brother, God is willing to be known as Jacob's God, Israel's God, and your God too. You see, he's also happy to be known as our help. He's glad to be known as the helper of his people. We think of helping as being a low and servile thing, but God doesn't. He isn't insecure, and he isn't too proud to be known in humble terms. I wonder who it is that you trust. I wonder who it is that you turn to in moments of need. Is it a person? Is it money? Is it your own wits? Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to make God your trust, your help, and your hope. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, do you know what this is saying? This passage is saying that God is willing to be the God of his people. That this God will be your God too, if you will turn to him in repentance and faith. The beauty of the gospel message is that all of us are sinners, that all of us actually deserve to be rejected by this God, this good and holy creator God. That all of us have sinned and rejected him. We've sought to dethrone him and to put ourselves on the throne of our lives and of this world. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God has made a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to this God and for this God to be our God too, this God who is high and lifted up, to be our helper, our savior, and our friend. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, to turn and to talk to the person who brought you 
or to come and talk to me or one of the pastors afterwards. We would love to tell you more about how it is that you can come to know this God, for this God to be your God too. There was a radio hit song about 30 years ago. I don't know how I know this because I'm so young. Sung by Bette Midler called From a Distance. It was a song that surprisingly talked about God, but the picture it painted was not biblical. From a distance, this is how the song goes, the world looks blue and green. From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land. From a distance, we all have enough, and no one is in need. And there are no guns, no bombs, and no disease, no hungry mouths to feed. God is watching us from a distance. This may sound nice in a way. The problem is, it just isn't true. God isn't merely looking at us from a distance, squinting his eyes until everything looks better than it really is. He is indeed the king high and lifted up, majestic and transcendent. But according to this psalm, he is also a present God, aware and attentive of each part of his creation. And when it comes to his own people, his children, he is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. He's especially concerned with the hurt and the pain and the suffering of each of his little ones. Look at verses 5 to 7. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, that is, who keeps his covenant and his promises forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who protects and defends the abused, who gives food to the hungry, providing daily bread for each of his children. You see these attributes of God listed show us his goodness and should lead us to trust him. But not only does God do this, he does more. Look at the end of verse 7 through 9. And as I read these verses, remember Jesus describing his ministry in Luke 4 as he quotes Isaiah 61. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. These things that God does, that only God can do, Jesus did when he came to earth. And in this way, he proved that he was God himself in human flesh revealing to us who God is and what he is like through his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. You see here that the Lord loves the righteous. The problem with us is that we are not, in and of ourselves, righteous. We are sinners. Look at what it also says in verse 9. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. But what does this mean for us? We are wicked. Well, it means that this is why Christ came in order to make the unrighteous righteous through repentance and faith. You see, as you see this list of the things that God does, that Christ does, Christ was taken into custody and he was executed so that we would be set free from our bondage to sin. Christ was bowed down so that through his death and resurrection, we could be lifted up to highest heaven. Christ became a stranger and a sojourner here on earth so that we would have an earth, an eternal home, not on earth, but in heaven. You see what Christ has done for sinners like you and me. He has come and made a way for us to find our home with God. 
as we conclude. This passage tells us not to put our trust in princes. So does this mean that we don't need anyone other than God? Does this mean that it's just me and God from here on out? Well, no. While God and God alone is our God and our ultimate trust and help, it is also part of God's good design to not leave us alone on a human level, but to put us in a covenant community. This is the church. Do you remember that this psalm begins and ends with a plural declaration? You all praise the Lord. This means that while we trust in God and God alone, we also benefit from the community of the saints. And one of the main things we do as fellow Christians is we speak the truth in love to one another. We remind one another of truth. And as Israel sang these psalms to one another, they reminded each other to delight in God, and to trust in God. And we do that too. We are to be continually reminding each other of truths about God so that we will persevere in faith to the end. I read in the journals of the 19th century Scottish pastor Andrew Bonar this sweet scene. Pastor Andrew, in October of 1864, lost his wife in childbirth. The baby survived, but his wife did not. And this pastor continued pastoring and fathering his children alone. He records his grief honestly in his journal entries, but he also records how the Lord comforted him. About four months after his wife's death, he penned this. February 25th, 1865. Shall I ever have a hard thought of such a Lord as mine? His afflictions are sent in deep love and then followed up by new mercies, as if he were hastening to soften the stroke. And then he records this scene. Today, my little Janie, that is one of his little girls, sat in the study playing with some little books. So here's a pastor studying in his study, his little daughter on the floor playing with some little books. And as if sent by the Lord, she went on repeating Psalm 103, and then the paraphrase, take comfort, Christians, when your friends in Jesus fall asleep. Take comfort, Christians, when your friends in Jesus fall asleep. And then Pastor Andrew says this, Was she God's messenger to me, lisping the message for my sake, though she knew it not? Little Janie on the floor of her father's study reminded him of truth about God from the Psalms as she recited her scripture memory, and she spoke better than she knew exactly what her father needed to hear. If God can use a little child mindlessly repeating her scripture memory to strengthen a grieving husband, friends, he can use you and he can use me too. God can use each one of us to repeat golden truths about God to the hearts that are hurting among us. And in this way, we will together grow up into Christ. And in this way, we will persevere to the end. And our covenant community will be looking like Christ as we learn to imitate our Savior who cares for the hurting and for the weak. Brothers and sisters, do not stop trusting as long as you live, as long as you have your being, do not stop praising. Praise the Lord. Trust the Lord until the day when we sing this song anew before Jesus' eternal throne. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise that you have allowed us to come to know you through Christ and to come to know you through your word. We thank you for the Psalms and the reminders that it gives of the truth about you that sustains us 
and that are so practical for us. We pray that we would be a people of praise who delight in you and a people of trust who trust in you and you alone. Pray that you would help us to do these things by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.